We're in our series, Bystander, because John was an eyewitness of Jesus' life. And so as I was thinking about this, I, I came across this. I actually used this in a, in a youth message over 20 years ago, and I came across it this week when I was studying. Over 20 years ago, the, the Chicago Tribune newspaper had an article with this line in it. Go ahead and put it up there, Krista. American baby boomers still whining because scientists have not yet developed a cure for death. 20 years later, I think the whining is still going on. Unless you know something I don't know, they still haven't found a cure for death, right? Um, statistics are remarkably consistent. One out of every one person dies, right? Welcome to New Life. Um, if Jesus is Lord, if he's God, if he's God's son, if he's the Messiah, I think he needs to be able to do something about death, Right? Because we've been looking at this. So for, for six weeks, we've been in this series. Go ahead and put that slide up there if you would. We've been in this series, Signs in the Gospel of John. John followed him around. He wrote this stuff down. And there are seven miracles. He calls them signs that point to Jesus as the Son of God. And they're awesome miracles. The first one here, turning water into wine at Cana. You remember that one. The next one was... <clears throat> He healed a royal official's son from a distance of 20 miles. He said, your son will be well. And he went, and his son was well. That's awesome. This one, he healed a man, a man who was lame for 38 years, meaning he couldn't walk. He was by the pool of Bethesda. Uh, and, and, and Jesus healed him and said, pick up your mat and walk. It was awesome. And then he goes out in the middle of the wilderness after John the Baptist was beheaded. He and his friends go out in the wilderness, and thousands of people came out there. And he, he fed them with Two, with five loaves and a couple of fish, it was a miracle. And then after that, they wanted to make him king by force. And so Jesus sends off his disciples because it was dangerous for them to be in a political climate like that. Jesus goes up and spends time on the mountain with his father. And then he comes walking to, to them on the water. And they're like, ah, ghost, not only are we going to drown, we're going to drown in the presence of a ghost. Ah, Jesus says, it's me. And, and Peter says, if it's you, call me to walk on the water. And he says, come on. And then Peter sinks. And it's this awesome story, right? And then this one, Last week, he healed a man who had been born blind, and everybody was asking, who sinned, his parents or him that he was born blind? And Jesus said, no, neither. He sinned that the glory of, or he, he's blind, that the glory of God might be displayed in him. See, all of those things, all of those six things are awesome, and they prove that Jesus is Lord over this world. But all those things are, are useless when someone's about to die. We don't need a Lord over this world. I'm telling you, we need a Lord over the next world. And this miracle today proves that he's the Lord over the next life. We need a Savior who's Lord over death. So today, we're not waiting in the kiddie pool. We're jumping right in the deep end, and we're going to ask this question. How can a good God allow pain and suffering? Ever heard that one? I hear it all the time. Been in ministry 37 years, 38 years. I don't know. It's too long now. I lose count. This is the number one question I hear. But when we think about pain and suffering, when we think about evil, isn't it true we're focused on the evil out there? We don't focus on the evil here. We don't focus on the evil here. So we're going to refocus a little bit today, and we're going to ask this question. Have you ever done anything bad? Mm-hmm, Yeah. Have you ever wanted to do something really, really bad? And the only reason you didn't is you knew you'd get caught and you'd go to prison. You didn't want to go to prison. That's, but if you thought for one second you could get away with it, 
right? Yeah. When people begin to wrestle with the existence of a good God and the existence of evil, it's always evil out there. It's never the evil in here. And people will say, well, you know, um, I'm not talking about the big bad evil. I'm talking about the big bad evil out there. I'm not talking about the little evil as if there's little, you know, as if there's scales of evil. <laughs> I know people think this way because I've never heard anybody ask this question. How could a God, a good God allow me to happen? Because if there's a good God, he should have done something about me by now. And he should have done something about you by now, right? We, we don't. We don't want to face the evil in us. We just want to talk about, oh, well, the, the guy who has the AR and he, he kills people in Colorado or Saddam Hussein or Hitler kills six million. That's big, bad evil. We don't want to talk about the evil in us. But if there's a good God, he has to do something about me, the evil in me. <clears throat> I don't think you can talk about one without the other. If John, the guy who followed Jesus around for three years and saw everything he did and heard everything he said and then wrote it down, if John were here today, I think he might say, what I saw in this one instance will help you with this dilemma of a good God and evil existing in the world. He'd say, I saw God in a human body. His name was Jesus. I saw Jesus. I saw evil exist at the same time. And whether you want to admit it or not, John would say, God and evil can coexist, here's the key, for now. There's coming a day. It's the book of Revelation when everything will be made right, but that is not today. God and evil can coexist right now. Now, up to this point in our study, Jesus has been in Cana, which is up kind of north in, in Israel, and then he goes down to Jerusalem. Every time he goes down to Jerusalem, he seems to get in trouble with the religious leaders, and he goes back and he comes. So today, he's... Right before what we're going to read, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He's going to get in trouble. Then he's going to go about a day's walk away. Here's, here's what happens right before the text that we're going to read. This is in John chapter 10. Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. So he says, not only did I tell you, I showed you, and you refused to believe. He said, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Now, that's a slap in the face because they're like, we are Israelites. We are children of Abraham, our father Abraham. And then he really blows their mind. He says, I and the Father are one. Now, look what they do when he says, I and the Father are one. Again, that means it's happened before. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. They picked up big rocks because they were going to kill him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Listen to what they say. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. And here it is, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Liberal people all the time said Jesus never claimed to be God. It's what got him killed. How do you deal with this? We're going to throw rocks at you because you say you're God. He very clearly claimed it. Now, in my mind at this point, Music starts playing, and he goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. B -b 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 Baby, you just ain't seen nothing yet. Because <clears throat> Jesus is about to blow their minds. And what he's about to do is so indisputable that the religious leaders said, we have to kill him to get him off of this planet, or we're going to lose everything. So we find out that Lazarus is from this little town called Bethany. And, and go ahead and put that up there, Krista. 
Um, so I like these maps because they're, you know, they're real obvious. And see this big arrow? Here's Bethany. <laughs> Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. That's very important. Remember, Jesus gets in trouble every time he goes to Jerusalem. He's about a day's walk away from there. We find out Lazarus is sick and Lazarus is from the town of Bethany. Way too close to trouble. You need to remember that. So we pick it up in John chapter 11, verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love. They don't even mention Lazarus' name. How, how cool would it be to be so close to Jesus that when someone prays for you, they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. I'd like to be that guy. He's sick. Jesus about a day's walk away. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now, if you know the story, you know that it results in death. That's not what he said. He didn't say this sickness will not result in death. He said it will not end in death, and that is huge. Look what he says. No, it's for God's glory. Now, hold on. Sickness can be for God's glory? Evidently, Jesus believed that bad things could happen to good people. Not only does it not disprove God, it actually is going to give proof for God and the existence of God's Son because there's a purpose. No, it's for God's glory, he said, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Last week, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. This sickness was not because of anyone's bad behavior. This sickness was actually left unattended on purpose because Jesus had a higher purpose in the sickness. And John knows that, and he knows the people that are reading it then are going to go, wait, this is really a confusing story. And he knows you and I 2,000 years are going to read this and go, what? I, I don't understand. And so he puts a little uh, editorial comment in the next verse for them and for us, and it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why did he put that in there? Because people are going, I don't think he loves them. Doesn't look like Jesus loves him. And John's like, hang with me. Because even though it gets dark and it's about to get a whole lot darker, Jesus really loved these people. The sign was not just for the people in Bethany. It's for us. It's for everyone in every generation. It was for you. It's for me. You need to know this as before we even get into the story. God's love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. If God has to choose between pampering you and making you a spoiled brat, God's not going to do that. That's not love. He's going to perfect you, and most of the time he has to perfect you with a chisel, and he has to hammer off the rough edges, and it hurts. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was. How many more days? And he loved him? He stayed there two more days? And then he says to his disciples, okay, I put this in blue because I want you to remember this. Let who go back? Let us go back to Judea. Now, let me give you the time frame real quick. So go ahead and put that next slide up there. Day one, the messenger comes to Jesus, all right? He's coming from Bethany. He's a day's walk away. It takes him a day to get there. He tells Jesus, hey, the one you love is sick. The messenger returns to Bethany. That's on day two. Jesus waits another day after that. That's day three. And then on the fourth day, Jesus walks a day's journey to Bethany. Four days he's been there. Now, if you've been with us any amount of time in this series, you know that Jesus healed complete strangers. He turned water into wine at, at probably a stranger's wedding. They didn't know him yet. He wasn't famous. He was invited, so he turns water into wine. He heals the nobleman's son. He didn't know the nobleman before he shows up in Capernaum, said, my son is dying. Can you come heal him? Jesus said he's going to get well. 
And in that instance, he spoke the word from over 20 miles. He's about 20 miles in this instance. If he loved Lazarus, why didn't he jump on a donkey or jump on something and get there? Or why didn't he just say, be healed, Lazarus, if he loved him? And then, then he, after hanging out for a couple of days, and this has to be confusing to the disciples, he says, let us go back to Judea. And immediately the disciples are confused because right before this, I just read you, what happened the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem? They tried to what? Stone him. We're not talking about marijuana. We're talking about rocks. <laughs> so it wasn't medical marijuana. They're confused. Because the problem with being around someone who's getting stoned with big rocks is people aren't accurate. If he's in danger, they're in danger. Does this make sense to you? So they say to him, but rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. Do you remember? We remember. It was just like two days ago, four days ago, Jesus. And yet you are going back, translation, and you want us to go with you? How about you not go? Or how about you go without us? And they realize Jesus is not going to be talked out of this. Nobody would make up these next words. If you, so <clears throat> I'm reading uh, The Cold Case Christianity um, by J. Warner Wallace. He's the homicide detective, and he just, he just rips to shreds all of the, the, um, all of the reasons that are out there against Jesus being God's son and God didn't exist. It's just awesome, and I'm loving all of this. And he said, nobody, no witnesses would ever make up this next part of the story because it doesn't even seem to go along. So if, if um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if they were to get together and, and put their story, they would all say exactly the same thing. He said, witnesses in any case never say the same thing. If they do, they're working together and they're lying to you. He said, we should see discrepancies, all of that stuff. So nobody would make up what Jesus is about to say because it doesn't make sense. Jesus answered, don't go to Jerusalem or Judea. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Stoning, you're talking about daylight saving time. Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by the world's light. Here's when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. Duh. Darkness stumble, light don't stumble. We're going to die. What does that have to do with anything, Jesus? He was talking about 12 hours of opportunity. He was talking about being on God's timetable. He was saying, you're in the physical presence of the light of the world. And if you stay here out of fear, you will miss the opportunity of a lifetime. He said, You'll ha you have a limited amount of opportunity to shine the light of Jesus where you are. So if you don't obey God simply because you're afraid, you will miss the opportunity of a lifetime. Jesus was about to change the way people think about life and death forever. Stay here in fear. Stay anywhere in fear, and you will miss what Jesus has for you. You'll stumble, stumble around in darkness. Your life will have no meaning, and you'll ask questions that you cannot know the answer to, questions like how can a good God allow pain and suffering if you leave God out of the equation because you will never understand those questions apart from the author of life. Apart from the author of life, you can't understand the one who created life. You don't find the answers in here. That's why you're confused. You don't find the answers in some other human being running around stumbling in the dark. 
The blind leading the blind, that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You discover it from the author of life. After Jesus says, hey, you want to go? He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to wake him up. And they're, they're like, well, mm, mm. Jesus, we're going to give you some medical advice. You ever done that when, when you're praying? Jesus, you should do this. God, you should do this. So like you're telling the author of life, the creator of the universe, how to do his job. They're going to give him some medical advice. Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Sick people need to sleep. Leave him alone. Let him rest. Sleeping's good. And Jesus is like, I hadn't thought of that, Andrew. We'll just stay here and make s'mores and sing Kumbaya and wait till it gets better. Verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Again, you would not make up these next words if you're trying to paint Jesus as this lovey guy. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. He didn't say I'm glad Lazarus died. He didn't say I'm glad for the pain and suffering that my friend and my, my, his sisters are going through. What he said was, I'm glad I was not there because you're about to learn something more about faith and about life and death than you've ever learned. You're going to go into the graduate school. He was glad for what the pain and suffering were going to accomplish in his followers. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe but let's go to him because let's be real honest today. You and I do not learn when everything's going our way. We learn through pain and suffering. I look in my life, the, the valley of the shadow of death when Jesus walked with me are the times I've grown most to look like Jesus. When I'm up on top of the, val- uh, the mountain and everything's going great, it is real easy for a human being to hear the lie from the pit of hell that you got yourself here. And to forget to thank Jesus. So we have to go back down into the graduate school of the valley of the shadow of death. If if God has to choose between your happiness and your holiness, guess which one he always chooses? He's not interested in your happiness. He's interested in your holiness because that looks like Jesus. Why is this story in the Bible? For my sake. And I'll put my because I want you to write down my sake and then I want you to write your name. If you're writing down on the listening guide, for for my sake, for John's sake, for Jeff's sake, for Teresa's sake, for Janie's sake, I want you to write it down. This is personal. It's for any parent who's ever buried a child. For the sake of any husband who's ever buried a wife. For the sake of every child who's buried their parents way too soon for the sake of every friend who's buried a friend or a friend who's buried the child of a friend. That's why this is in the Bible. Now, at this point, I'm sorry, that was was serious. At this point, there's a little bit of comical relief. Jesus is not going to be talked out of it, so Thomas, don't put that up yet, Thomas, doubting Thomas. Thomas is about to bring some comical relief. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus. Now, Didymus is just Greek for twin. We don't know who his twin was, but I think the reason we don't know who his twin was is because you and I are twins. We act like him. Here's what he says. said to the rest of the disciples, let's go that we may die with him. Translated, Lazarus is dead. Jesus fitting to die. You and I fitting to die. This 
this is not going to go well. You know it's not going to go well. Let's go die with him. It reminds me of Eeyore in, in Winnie the Pooh. Let's go die with him. All going to die. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in Bethany, all right? Jesus is a day's walk away back in Bethany. Everyone's asking, where's Jesus? Because he stayed there regularly. This was, he would stay in their home, spend the night, eat meals with them. He would go to the, the temple in Jerusalem, come back to Bethany to hang out with his close friends. Where's Jesus? This is embarrassing because he's so late to the party. Have you ever asked, where are you, God? It's past time. You should have showed up yesterday. You should have showed up last week. Telling the God of the universe how to do his job. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead, had already been in the tomb four days. And there are no unnecessary details in this story. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. That's going to be huge here in a minute. Martha hears about it. She runs out to meet him, Lazarus' sister. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if, if you, if only you had been here. If only, if only, if only, if only. You've said it and I've said it. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know now that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she assumes at this point, she assumes he just shifted into, into preacher talk. You know, when they walk in, here's a verse, here's a book, here's a song you should listen to. And she thinks he's given her some simple theological spin to make a bad situation better. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She'd been paying attention at, at Sunday school. I know he's going to rise again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus said to her, look at me. Look what he says. I am the resurrection of life. He didn't say I give resurrection. I am resurrection and life personified. And look at this. He says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And that's actually a double negative. Will never, never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. What you need to know is that people who were close to Jesus told him exactly how they felt. So you have permission to tell God how you feel. Bad things happen to good people all the time, even close friends of Jesus. And I just have to say again, nobody making this story up would put these words into Jesus' mouth because Jesus says the one in any generation who believes in, not just believes that I existed, but believes in me will have life and will never, never die. You put your trust in him, you'll live even though you die. Jesus could not have been any clearer that that death is not the end, it's a transition. It's a doorway to another life. So Martha's looking at Jesus. She sums up as much faith as she can. She says, I believe. I don't understand everything, but I've seen way too much. I've heard way too much. I believe you're the son of God. She goes back into town. She tells her sister, Mary, comes out. Similar conversation. Then Jesus asks, where have you laid him? And Jesus comes outside the tomb knowing what he's about to do. And he pauses and he enters into the emotion of the moment. Where's God when bad things happen? When my mom and my dad and my sister all died in one day, where's God? 
when my nephew, one year and one day before mom, dad, and sis died, when he accidentally shot himself. Where's God? This verse leaves no doubt where God is when bad things happen, when pain and suffering hit us. John eleven thirty five, shortest verse in the Bible, it says, Jesus wept, knowing he's about to speak life. Why does he weep? I think it's because Jesus is the author of life. Scripture tells us that nothing was created without him. Jesus created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, and it was perfect. Gave them freedom of choice. And now thousands of years later, he's looking at what sin and death does. And he weeps because it's not supposed to be this way. It was not supposed to be this way, and it won't be that way in the future. Evil and God can coexist for now. Jesus shows us he's fully human in that moment, and he cries. Then Jesus said, see, then the Jews, I'm sorry, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind? <laughs> could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Man, I really wouldn't have been able to read that if it was in the King James. Um, <laughs> so here's what they're saying. If he could have, he would have, but since he didn't, he couldn't. But what the scripture teaches us is he could have, but he chose not to. Why would he choose not to? So that's, that God may be glorified, so that the Son of God may be glorified in pain and suffering. <laughs> to show that he's even Lord over death. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Martha, but Lord, Martha said, sister of the dead man, by this time there is a really bad odor, for he's been there four days. Jesus, you're late, really, really late. It's too late. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? See, for a Christian, it's not seeing as believing. It's believing results in seeing. It's different. So they roll a stone away, and I'm sorry, in my mind, they roll a stone away, and there's not a, there's not a peep being made, but everybody goes. <laughs> they've never seen a dead man four days dead come out. They step back. Complete silence. And then Jesus pauses, and he prays, and he says this. Father, I thank you that you heard me. And he's praying out loud, but he's praying for the people around there. He's praying for you and me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. See, this event was already on the calendar before Jesus left heaven. It was on the calendar before God created the universe. The most important question in life is not the question of God and evil. The most important question in life is, who is Jesus? Because if he's God's son, if he's the Messiah, if he rose from the dead, which we're going to talk about next week, then all the questions of life get resolved in him. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And one of the early theologians in the first and second century said, it's a good thing he called Lazarus' name. Otherwise, everybody in that cemetery would have walked out. <laughs> come out. Uh, oh, sorry. No, no. Go back. <laughs> Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen 
and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Two times Jesus involves everybody around. He says to them, roll the stone away. Could they raise him? No, but they could roll the stone away. Could they raise him? No, but they could take the grave clothes off. And again, dead man's there. Jesus said, take the clothes off. And I'm like, you take the clothes off. I'm not sure what's going on here. Here's the point. A healed Lazarus would have been awesome. A resurrected Lazarus was even better. Because death is defeated. Jesus didn't say, I give resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The focus was on who he was. And this had never been done before. And as you can probably imagine, the results were very, very clear. Look what it says in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. I bet they did. But why does it say many and not all? Because there's always people who refuse to believe. I'm not going to consider any evidence. And we have those people. In verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's the, that's the council, the, the religious council, 70 people on this council. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here this man is performing many signs. They're saying, he's doing stuff we cannot explain. And then the most arrogant statement in the Bible. If we let him, excuse me, you tried to stone him several times. He just walked through you. One time they tried to throw him off a hill. In Nazareth, outside of Nazareth, there's this hill where they tried to throw him off the hill. And the Bible says he just walked between them because it was not yet his time. If we let him. 2,000 years later, a third of the world's population believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, if we let him. Jesus said, no one, just the, the, the chapter before in, in John 10, 18, he says, no one takes my life. I lay my life down and I'm going to take it back up again if we let him. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You know what's ironic about this? 37 years later or 27 years later, the Romans came and took away their temple and the nation. Destroyed it. Idiots. <laughs> then one of them, the chief idiot named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem when Lazarus was raised from the dead. People stormed down the hill. It's actually up on a mountain. You got to go past the Mount of Olives. You got to go down to the Eastern Gate. People stormed into Jerusalem. You won't believe what happened. You won't believe what happened. You won't believe what happened. And not only did the, did the Pharisees, the religious leaders say, we got to kill Jesus. They said, if we're going to accomplish anything, we have to kill Lazarus too because many people are believing because Lazarus is alive. Let's kill them both. Let's get off the idiots. We don't need a Savior who can just help us when life gets tough. We need a Savior who can resurrect us when life ends. That's what the Easter story is about. So when I was reading all this, I came across um, William Barclay was a, was a commentator over 100 years ago, and, and he, he records a quote of a guy named William the Confessor. That'd be awesome. Put that on my tombstone, Doug the Confessor. 
what they're really going to put is Preacher D, because that's my rap name. Preacher D. <laughs> anyway, he, he quotes William the Confessor, and I thought this was spectacular, so I had to put it on here. Weep not, I shall not die. And as I leave the land of the dying, I love this, I trust to see the blessings of the Lord in the land of the living. We call this world the land of the living, but it would be, in fact, more correct to call it the land of the dying. Through Jesus Christ, we know that we are journeying not to the sunset, but to the sunrise. There's going to be a day that you hear that Doug Washburn, Preacher D, is dead. Don't you believe it? At that moment, I will be more alive than you've ever seen in the presence of the Savior who is the resurrection and the life. It's why I can preach at a funeral and say, I know my brother Dennis is in heaven. I know Christina is in heaven. And Christina laying in her bed before, before I baptized her, she said, hey, I want to say something to everybody. I'm going to meet Jesus. I want to go out like that. When Jesus came to earth, he came to live alongside evil. He came to live alongside evil people. That's you and me. God didn't eliminate evil. What he did was he placed the consequences of evil on his son on the cross. And it says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless. God made him sin so that we could go to heaven. The question is, do you believe this? We said this last week, our, our formula in the Christian life is believe, receive, become a child of God, and here's the rest of the story, who will never, never die. Oh, yeah, this physical body, it was temporary. It's a tent. There's a permanent home in heaven for anyone who believes and receives and is adopted. If you don't believe, you don't receive, you're not adopted. And when you stand before Jesus, he's going to say, I'm sorry, I do not know who you are. It's not too late. As long as you have breath, you can be adopted. Please, somebody today, let today be the day you're adopted into the family of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that the tomb is empty. We thank you that your enemy said the tomb was empty. The, the religious leader said the tomb was empty. Your followers said the tomb was empty. So we come to the conclusion that the tomb was, in fact, empty. And we believe it's because you raised from the dead. God, I pray for next week. I pray that you would fill this place with people who want to celebrate the empty tomb, people that may not understand the empty tomb. And God, for our inheritance, I'd love to see people who, who don't even believe in you come and hear the story about the empty tomb. For our inheritance at New Life, would you give us lost people, God? Because we believe that when we, when we finish breathing, that's just the doorway into the next life and we want as many people as possible to be in your family and in your kingdom. So give us the ability to, to lead people to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.